I V M. Believe it. Beautiful North Korea, the people's paradise. Travelocity.com says, please send back our gnome. We're worried. Let's start by trying to understand just a little bit more about North Korea. And that in itself is difficult. It's one of the most isolated and insular nations on Earth. If you know anything about it at all, it's probably just that they have a wacky totalitarian leader who loves military parades and Dennis Rodman and who really didn't like that Seth Rogen movie about his assassination. How about Trump calling Kim Jong-un quite a guy and quite a character? <laughs> what a character. He poisoned his brother and put his uncle in front of a firing squad. What a hoot. And you can see why Trump is jealous. North Korean news broadcast stories like Kim Jong-un learned to drive at age three. And his father, Kim Jong-il, in his first round of golf, scored 11 holes in one. That's right, 11 holes in one, not 18. That would sound far-fetched. North Korean state media also claims Kim Jong-il invented the hamburger, which he called the double bread with meat. Hi, you're listening to States of Anarchy, and I'm your host, Hamsini Hariharan. Every week, I sit down with guests and experts to discuss global affairs and foreign policy. A couple of weeks ago, I visited Seoul, and I realized how little I knew about the Korean Peninsula. How much do you know about North Korea apart from memes? Is North Korea a failed state? What is their economy? Do they have a constitution? How does North Korean propaganda work? These are some questions that I really want to be answered. I'm very excited for my guest today because he's also a friend and was super helpful to me during my stay in Seoul. Benjamin Katz of Silberstein is a Templeton Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also a doctoral candidate at the University of Pennsylvania, where he's focusing on surveillance in North Korea. I got Ben to sit down and explain how North Korea primarily works. But before we get to the conversation, let's take a short break. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our sponsors this month, Savari Storytel and Paytm Money. Also, guys, I just want to remind you that we do these audiograms on our social media. Audiograms are short snippets from episodes which are interesting to listen to. Check them out. I think you'll enjoy them. Also, guys, we are doing a podcast with Ronnie Skruwala called the Ronnie Skruwala Podcast. And on that podcast, on the last episode, we're going to have Ronnie answer a bunch of listener questions. If you'd like to send us a question, please send it to us at dreaming at ivmpodcast.com. Also, do check out our YouTube page where we have Ronnie talking to Cyrus on Cyrus Says. We have a bunch of short clips there which I think you'll enjoy. This week on Shunya One, Sheila Ditya and I are joined by Hitesh Malhotra, the Chief Marketing Officer of Nika, to talk about various aspects of marketing. On Equity Sahih, brought to you by Motilal Oswal Asset Management, Shreya Lunkar talks to Anupam about life insurance and what the product is all about. On the Habit Coach Podcast, Ashton tells you different ways to manage and control stress and how it will impact your life in a positive way. On Know Your Kanun, Amber talks about the structure, power and characteristics of the recently passed Lokpal Bill. On the Prakati Podcast, Anand Arni, ex-member of RAW and Pranay Kotastane, head of the geostrategy program at Takshashila, discussed the upcoming election in Afghanistan. On Advertising is Dead, Varun is joined by Harshad Chavan, managing director of Toast Events, to talk about the growth of digital media, influencer marketing, and the famous Gap Dabbawala campaign. On the ATKT Talent Tent, hosts P-Man and Krupa are joined by singer-songwriter Naila Saldana. They discuss the strict dress codes followed by colleges in India. On Positively Unlimited, Chitna talks about different aspects of relationship, unrequited love, heartbreaks, closures, and how to find your soulmates. And with that, let's get you on with your show. 
Welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan, and I'm talking to Benjamin Katz of Silberstein about the basics of North Korea. Hi, Ben. Welcome to States of Anarchy. Thank you very much. I'm so glad you're here. Um, because <laughs> whenever in India, at least like from a noob perspective, I'm not someone who knows a lot about the Korean Peninsula. Whenever we talk about North Korea, all we can come up with is sort of like memes on how Kim Jong-un is crazy or... No, some of them are pretty funny. Some of them are yeah, pretty yeah. funny. Um, not all of them, but some of them. Yeah, and you know, a lot about how like tourists who go there say, you know, there are fronts of buildings, but mm. there are no backs of buildings. Yeah. And that's basically it. That's the repository of knowledge that like mm. an average person has about North Korea. Mm. So I thought we could just sort of do like a North Korea 101 and yeah. start right at the beginning, at the end of World War II. Sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what happens when World War II ends? The two Koreas so, are divided. First of all, you, well, one could argue, mm. uh, this is the, the historian in me coming out, one could argue that if, to, to tell the story of North Korea, it actually has to be a lot earlier. It all depends on where... You kind of brand yourself depending on where you, you want to put the start of North Korea. But you could, I mean, I work on surveillance in North mm-hmm. Korea. And a lot of the roots of surveillance, the way the system works, actually come from the Japanese colonial period. Uh, I would, but, but, but for simplicity's sake, yes, let's start with 1945. So otherwise we're going to get on to a very long tangent. <laughs> so in 1945, the United States and the Soviet Union liberated uh the Korean Peninsula from Japanese rule. Mm-hmm. And because of the state of Soviet-US relations at the time, they decided to divide Korea into two zones of occupation. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the, the beginning of, of the division of Korea and the beginning of North Korea. Mm-hmm. So the Soviet Union installed a communist government mm-hmm. um, of bo- most of the top leadership were not very experienced communists. Kim Il-sung, definitely, I doubt that he had ever read Marx. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he ever did, to be honest. I believe Kim Jong-il did, but mm. anyway. Um, good for him. It's yeah. always good to know where your state's ideology is. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, Kim, Kim Jong-il, he, he wrote a, a thesis on sort of socialist agriculture and things like that. So, oh, I did not know that. Yeah, he uh, he, he wrote it at some, well, on his father's agricultural policies at Kim Il-sung University. Uh, Kim Il-sung um, University. With the, under the advice of uh, Hong Jong-yop, who was, a, he was sort of the chief ideologue of North Korea. He, Created the Chuche philosophy, but see, I'm already getting off on a tangent, so <laughs> that's so. fine. <laughs> so we'll go back. So the Korean Peninsula was divided into two, and Kim Il Sung and a bunch of other communists mm. in the north. Yeah. And whenever we talk about the Korean War, typical textbooks say mm. that the North attacked the South, and that's right. how the war began. Yeah. Is that really how the war began? I mean, it's a simplified description of how the war began, but there were a lot of domestic tensions already. Mm. Um, the Korean War, you can really look at it in, in several different ways. You can look at it as an international conflict between the United States, China, and the Soviet Union. You can also look at it as a civil war. So between the communist government of North Korea on one side and with support of communist guerrilla groups scattered across, across the peninsula and the South Korean government on the other side. So And, and also with, with supporting various guerrilla groups of various constellations. So um, there were a lot of armed skirmishes that happened long before the war began mm. already from, I mean, 1947 is, uh, have you been to Jeju Island? You haven't. No, right? I haven't no, been to Jeju no. Island. Me neither, actually. But I, it's, it's, uh, I <laughs> I've heard a lot about it. this in print public, but um, <laughs> there was a, a major massacre on, on Jeju Island where the South Korean government was rooting out 
um, so-called communist guerrilla fighters. Mm -hmm. They were definitely present on Jeju and, and in Korea, but they, they, uh, the number of what you could cynically call collateral damage, mm -hmm. so civilian deaths is absolutely horrifying. And so, so there were, like, tensions were really building up mm -hmm. way before the war. The difference is with, I mean, the, what happened in 1950 is that North Korea launched a full-scale invasion. So yes, mm -hmm. that's absolutely Absolutely true, and there are documents to prove this. Mm. But it wasn't the beginning of tensions. I, that's good to know, particularly when you're thinking of history and it's easy just to assign blame on one side and right. say that's yeah. the evil side yeah. and they're doing all wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, North Korea did start the war, for sure. But <laughs> I'm not a North Korea apologist. There are people who would argue that, well, it doesn't matter if the North started the war, but I mm. mean, it was a very conscious decision mm. to, with, with the goal of unifying the Korean Peninsula mm. under communist rule. So how has North Korea fared since the war? Is it a dictatorship? Is it a totalitarian state? Is it a monarchy? How would you classify it? I, I would definitely call it a totalitarian state. Perhaps the most totalitarian state that has ever existed. I mean, totalitarianism itself is a very modern phenomenon. You need to have... So it's a version of modern governance, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't really... We can only talk about any sort of totalitarianism from sort of the, I guess, late 1800s mm. onwards, I would say. And, well, North Korea really is a... I, monarchy, I don't... It's, see, you can have monarchies that are fully democratic. Or we have a mm. lot of those. But North Korea, what makes it unique is the emphasis put on succession, right? And on mm. there's one that's a totalitarian state governed by one family. Mm. And this is what really makes it different from, say, the Soviet Union under Stalin, where if you look at the social system and a lot of the ways in which political surveillance and economic governance, a lot of how that worked in the Soviet Union under Stalin, that's basically how it works in North Korea, and that's what is working in North Korea. So, But the one-man rule really is what makes it stand out mm. and... Arguably, it's what has made North Korea survive for as long as it has. So. Mm. And there are a lot of people who go around saying North Korea is a failed state. Would you consider North Korea a failed state? No, no, definitely not. I, I, I would say it's a very non-failed state. That's mm. part of what's so interesting about it is that even during a famine, should I recap the famine real quick? Yes, yes. Yeah, what so is when the, the When the Soviet Union collapsed in uh, 1991, mm. North Korea's most important ally in the world was gone. Um, and they, the Soviet Union cut down a lot of its financial support to North Korea before then. Mm. And so did China. So sort of between the late 1980s and the early 1990s, North Korea lost a lot of economic subsidies mm. from the communist world. And eventually, after a few years, this, this plunged the country into a massive famine where... Estimates vary between 600,000 to 1 million people, but, but um, dying, starving to death. And what also, I mean, at the same time, a lot of the most crucial functions of governance collapse when soldiers and party functionaries and people who are really the, the pinnacles of the system, when they become receptive to bribes because mm -hmm. the state can't pay them anymore. It's a big problem for, for, any, for any country, mm -hmm. especially for a dictatorship. And people started crossing the border to China, and eventually 30,000 people have made it to, to South Korea, so mm. far, so-called so North Korean defectors. What's fascinating to me, though, is that all throughout this period, the North Korean state wasn't really threatened. There's no major rebellion or anything like that, and there really haven't been any 
sort of no alternatives posed to the current regime. No serious challengers have ever arisen since at least the 1950s and 60s. So that's pretty remarkable. If you look at it through that light, that even when the economy collapsed, North Korea as a state survived and remained fairly strong, it's really the opposite of a failed state. A state that has succeeded to, to survive under very difficult conditions. This is something that I've wondered particularly about states where you simply don't know a lot about the system. I mean, at the end of the day, how can you distinguish between sort of myth, what we know and what we don't know? Yeah. I mean, we don't know if there have been any rebellions that could have. I don't know. How do you think about it, particularly when you're doing research? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. We don't actually know. It's very hard to prove that something didn't happen. Mm. There have, I mean, definitely skirmishes between civilians and officials mm. in North Korea. And definitely, I mean, mostly around, from what we know, at least mostly around the, the country's markets. Mm. These started to, so, so formally, North Korea has public distribution of all goods to, to its citizens mm. and food rationing and things like that. Mm. And in the 1990s, the state just couldn't deliver mm. to significant parts of the, the country at least, although it never collapsed entirely. But anyway, so these markets where people traded goods mm. with each other became very, very important for people's mm. survival. And today it's uh, how a very significant portion of the population, maybe the majority, gets uh, what they need to survive, mm. um, food and, and other things. And we do know quite a few cases where people get really pissed off at, say, the local party cadre extorting fees from people mm. for market trading and, and demanding higher and higher bribes and things like that. Yeah, there are definitely cases. We even have video footage of people just lashing out at state representatives at like mm. the local cop mm -hmm. market and whatnot. But in my mind, that's not the same as anti-state rebellion necessarily. Mm. You're not saying that because your local public official is being an asshole, excuse my language, mm because of that, that you want to topple the Kim government. Mm. You know, it's about very concrete things. Like, you mm. are making my life difficult. I am mad at you, and I, I'm not going to take mm. it anymore. But to go from there to actually wanting to topple the system, they're very, mm. very different things. I agree. Um, so what is the North Korean economy? It just because I don't know. I know you mm. work a little bit about yeah, reporting yeah, yeah. on, like, food prices and things. What yeah. is the North Korean economy? Apparently, they used to do trade with India until the recent sanctions. Yeah. yeah. So that is all I know. They used to trade with India, but I have no clue what. Yeah. Um, how do you start when, to, to explain what any country's economy is? Uh, so, so they... Um, what do they produce? Well, so let me talk about this in, let's assume, let's go back to before sanctions, because that's okay. much, much easier to do. All right. I mean, a lot of things have happened since around 2017, 2016, when mm -hmm. sanctions started getting seriously implemented, but... The most important industry for exports mm -hmm. is uh, mining products, coal and iron ore, mm -hmm. steel, things like that. Uh, textiles are a very important product as well, fishery products. And these are all things that the United Nations Security Council resolutions have targeted for that mm -hmm. reason, that they're very important export commodities. Um, I mean, the agricultural economy is pretty big. Mm -hmm. For the past few years, at least, judging from the data that we have and what we know, it's always a caveat you have to make with North Korea. Um, they really haven't needed to import that much food mm. and um, they've been, I don't want to say self-reliant, the keyword of Chukcha ideology, by the way, but because they needed to import fertilizer and things like that. But still, yeah, so, and, and they're 
like little mom and pop shops producing mm. a lot of things. Like much of we we actually don't really know very much about the size of the service sector and things mm. like that because it's like alchemy. Like we can, <laughs> <laughs> there are various ways of making making it look like we know much more than we do. But mm. yeah. So who do they export to? China. China. Yeah, ninety okay. percent of North Korea's trade is with China. So I'm not sure what proportion of trade was with India before the sanctions, mm-hmm. but very, very small. Yeah, anything, so. anything outside of China is very small. And of course, there's a lot of trade that we don't that that isn't reported. So they probably mm. should trade more with Russia than we know, mm. for example. Yeah, and I'm guessing they import a lot from China as well. I was yeah. reading recent reports about how smartphones are prevalent and things like that. Yeah, um, more prevalent than in the past. They, mm-hmm. Most smartphones used in the country are actually manufactured in North Korea. Oh. Yeah. A lot of the components are not. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, the authorities want to keep very close track of the smartphones. So mm. they, they make sure to... You can only buy models that... Are, I, I, I'm actually not 100% sure about this, but I believe... That that's how it works. Mm. You can only buy domestically manufactured smartphones unless mm. you are a very privileged, special person. Uh, but yeah, they, they import a lot from China. And that's, that's really part of the biggest problem right now under sanctions isn't necessarily that they can't export stuff. Because the only point for a country like North Korea with exporting things is to be able to import. Because mm. they don't, I mean, they're not trying to run a, a, a current account surplus for the mm. sake of it. So they import, I mean, things like machinery and, and things that you need to uh, switch out regularly in factories, mm. like spare parts and stuff mm. like that. They import a lot of that from China. It's a big problem when now imports have plunged, uh, not as much as exports, but, but a lot. Okay. So that, that's a big issue. So the sanctions that you're yeah. speaking about are the U.S. sanctions against North Korea. Yeah, the Korea. U.N. sanctions. The U.N. sanctions against yeah. North Korea for its testing of nuclear yeah. weapons. We've spoken about this a couple of times in this conversation, but what is Juche? Juche? Juche, yeah. Okay, what is Juche? Uh, it is a North Korean state ideology, Okay. You say, that where the most important, the core of it really is self-reliance, not to be dependent on foreign powers for, for your survival, neither in politics nor in economics, sort of. And it's, I mean, the the issue with, so this is all in theory, right? Mm. This is sort of how, sure. how, if you read the texts, like I'm reading it, I have a speech here by Kim, Kim Jong-un that he gave at a, off, never mind, a major meeting a couple of weeks ago. Okay. He mentioned self-reliance and things like, like all the time, North Korean mm. officials do this. But at the same time, like the famine showed it, North Korea has always been very dependent on others. Mm. And it still is economically. And... You could see this as the root of the nuclear program. Mm. You know, this, the, if you getting a nuclear, having a nuclear deterrent, that's really the the most, the safest, the most stable way to be a politically and militarily independent power. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean that makes sense. It's not yeah. only a bargaining chip, but it also sort of ensures your state's survival. It's not. It's yeah. You know, particularly because it's such a small state. Yeah. Um, and it needs to punch much more above its weight, and I think it has to be fair. Absolutely. <laughs> right. You don't see the prime minister of I don't know what's another of Myanmar say mm. going around meeting Donald Trump, Xi Jinping, Putin, 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 in in, in the same like within only this five few months. Mm. That's a pretty. I mean, it's. It's pretty impressive. It is. Yeah. Uh, and they also have a military first policy, right? A lot of their citizens are a part of the paramilitary. Uh, I was talking to a North Korean woman yesterday, actually. Mm-hmm. It was She just mentioned casually how, like, something, something, when I would shoot a gun. I'm like, wait, what What are you talking about? Like, when? 
But I asked her to tell me how she knows how to shoot a gun, and they have, um, they, everyone has basic weapons training in North Korea. They have all these, like, they have local militias attached to workplaces and to schools and to, like, every, everywhere. Like, wherever all citizens of a certain age are supposed to, in theory, be able to just pick up a rifle and use it against the American invaders. So, yeah, it's, I don't even know if, because military first was mostly, it's unclear to me how much these terms really matter in a way. Sure. Like it was, it was a policy that they sort of, because they, they, they keep coming up with new keywords and new jargon. Mm -hmm. Like it used to be military first, now it's like our state first. And mm -hmm. the question is always, what does this actually translate to in practice? Um, but I mean, military first has always sort of been in a way it's always been part of the north korean identity like again yeah. all all citizens are supposed to know how to defend the motherland mm. question is would they actually do it i don't know i'm not sure yeah yeah and it ties into i guess the sense of north korean nationalism and absolutely that makes sense yeah at this point let's take a break did you know that parsis in mumbai instead of being left at the tower of silence after they die are now cremated. And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal, but three? One of them was seen, but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Verma and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind, but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsani Hariharan. So elections do take place in North Korea. Is that yeah. true? Okay. How? I mean, there are, are they rigged? It doesn't matter. Elections matter, but not for the purpose that they matter in democracies. Okay. It's mostly an administrative checkup on, it's like a, a, a census in a way. Because mm. when people go to vote, they have to show their like ID cards and they have to go and vote where they live. Mm. Uh, everyone has to show up mm. and you have to stand in line to show up and you can pay people to stand in line for you. This is has happened uh it's and, and when, when when people from north korea talk about the way elections happen they're like they don't they don't seem to see it at all as an election mm. i i think i mean in in korean i guess you well you talk about the act of voting mm. they do they do talk about elections like technically but but it's it's just they attach a different meaning to it mm. for them it's it's one of several festivals where you have to go and show your support for for the leader and then it's like a ceremony really in the freaking room where you vote you have two pictures of you have pictures of the leaders hanging on the walls 
So you don't get that much choice in the matter. And so you go to vote and to, to get a check, check the box and, and show that you, you're present where you're supposed to be. You haven't defected to China or South Korea. Even people who live in China illegally and work there as to send money back to their families, a lot of them tend to come back for voting just because if you don't show up, that can be a big problem for your family. Mm. So, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it, it is very interesting though, the, uh, the whole process. That's definitely worthy of a dissertation in its own right. Did mm. you see any of the, the pictures and clips and stuff of people showing up at the, like you just like dancing outside the voting? No, uh, but I have to a, check that out. That's yeah, that's yeah, great. yeah. It's, uh, uh, okay. it's very interesting. This year, they even the the North Korean media claimed that they had they had Westerners overseeing the election and things like that. And yeah, I mean, it's like look at the like, terms like democracy just in a totally different way. Mm. To them, it just means something totally different. Mm. So yeah, I guess it's just a different worldview of its own. Um, yeah, with language in general, like it doesn't. In a way, I think. Because we can look at their constitution and say, mm. oh, they, they don't have, they say they have freedom of speech and they don't, and they say they have, they elect their officials and they don't. It's all absolutely true. Mm. But within a North Korean context, I don't think that we can interpret these terms to, to really mean the same thing as we claim that they mean. Like the, our concepts of democracy are just so, so far off from theirs. And that's not saying that, that they're equal. I really mm. don't think they are. Mm. Um, hope that I can still uh, appear an objective observer researcher while saying that I think that democracy is, is a better system for human dignity than totalitarianism. And when it comes to, to democracy, it's, you know, they just, what they mean by it is just nothing near. What we, mm. like, um, All right. That's yeah. fair. And so North Korea has a constitution. Absolutely. And what does it say? Is it just rhetoric or? Yeah, it's mostly just rhetoric. Okay. Uh, so one thing I'm very curious about is if most North Koreans are like, A, are they aware that the constitution exists mm. and B, have they read it? I don't think most probably haven't. Mm. I wonder what would happen if, if let's just say that overnight all North Korean citizens got a copy of the constitution and they, they were able to read that you are guaranteed freedom of assembly. You're mm. guaranteed freedom of speech. Maybe they would at least start to wonder what these things mean. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, they have a constitution and the most significant parts of it are probably the ones where, well, it sets out that for political purposes, mostly most significant, it sets out that North Korea is a nuclear state. There's been no move to change that. Mm. And I don't think there will be, uh, it sets out that, uh, Kim Il-sung is the eternal president of the country. It really is an embodiment of like the leaders are the state there, they are the, the sort of core of, of the North Korean state. And that's constitution is one of many things that emphasize that. Mm. Uh, and I, I mean, a constitution matters in certain ways for government governance. Like it sets out some for, formal bureaucratic procedures and things like that. Yeah. But you can't really take the government to constitutional courts for violating your rights. Mm. So. So how is the North Korean government organized? I mean, a typical democracy would have, you know, like an executive, legislative, yeah. judicial trio, triad, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so how does the North Korean government function? Well, there's there's the party. Okay. That's, I mean, the party controls all of these institutions that in a democracy would check each other. So is the party the state? Yeah, pretty okay. much. Mm. Because in 
places like China, which yeah. uh, there's a difference between the party and state, at least nominally, um, even if, you know, like functions are replicated and things. Like yeah. That. Well, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's a tricky, I mean, definitely. So in North Korea, there, there's no, in, in reality, there's really no separation at all. Mm. Uh, the party controls the, I mean, the courts and uh, every workplace has a party cell secretary. It really is permeates through the entire system. Mm. So the party really is the core of the state. Of course, there is a bureaucracy. They have an administration, just like any other country. But the whole idea of separation, it's, it's just not really relevant mm. in the North Korean case. Uh, I mean, there's some, like, bureaucratic institutions are separate from each sure. other. I'm sure they bicker with each other a lot. Mm. Um, but... I hope to be able to tell you more about that in my dissertation. Uh, oh, good. Now I look forward to it. Yeah, yeah, bickering. It's fascinating. Yes? Yeah, okay. Yeah. There's also a lot that's always been said about sort of North Korean propaganda. And I get that because, you know, it's a state that you know so little of. So they also want to put across their narrative, particularly so important within the boundaries of their state. So, um, you know, you see like photos of or pictures or posters that celebrates, you know, like the Kim family and the leaders and things like that. But how does sort of propaganda work? Is it a giant brainwashing machine in like a dystopian fiction setting? Uh, in a way, I mean, yeah, that, that's my understanding of how it works based on having spoken with people from North Korea quite a bit is that everyday life is not dystopian all the time mm-hmm. anywhere on the planet. I really don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think propaganda is something that you, you just get used to mm-hmm. very quickly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, really everywhere. There are very, very few, perhaps no spheres at all of, of North Korean society where propaganda is absent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, in every classroom you have, Portraits that you need to polish with, at least in the, the 1970s. I was talking to someone who told me about this, that in the 1970s they would have a specially dedicated cleaning set for the portraits in each classroom. And, and these little habits and these little routines, they just they create a very deep sense of, of connectedness mm. to the leadership family. I'm not saying that all North Koreans love them endlessly. They're all individuals, just like in any country. But at the same time, it's, it's just an inescapable fact of life in North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, I kind of struggle to think of things to compare and relate it to in, in sort of um, thinking in, I mean, for a religious per- person, if you see like everything in your life, uh, it's probably going to be related in one way or the other to your religious outlook. Mm-hmm. You, you all, a lot of religious people have little habits that they do to remind themselves of that. And it's very much the same thing in North Korea that you know, when you you're going to learn to pay attention to if you're if you have a newspaper with the the leader's picture on it, you're going to make sure to you kind of know instinctually not to fold it or not to put anything on top of it and things like that. So yeah, and that's not to say that people don't have independent thoughts there, but I just think that a lot most people probably don't think of the propaganda as distinct from life. It's just a part of your everyday routine. No, I think so. that's a great parallel. Uh, yeah. And I know you've worked a lot on surveillance, uh, just generally within North Korea. So how does the surveillance system work? What is the main objective of the surveillance system? Is it just to keep tabs on citizens? Well, the main objective is to to keep um, any sort of political threats and any problematic attitudes out of the country. And I mean, the main purpose of the surveillance organs is to protect the leadership family. 
that really is their main, their number one objective. Um, that's what the, the uh, state security ministry is tasked with doing. The most important functions of the, the surveillance system really is, I mean, that's really the creation of a culture where people know exactly what they're not supposed to do. Mm. If you ask someone from North Korea, like, so do you ever have conversations where you criticize the government? Mm. To most, it would seem completely bizarre of a question, I think, that why would you even ask that? That's like mm. asking, oh, so when you flew from India, did you fly with your wings or did you go on? Like, it's like insane. Yeah. It's out of this, why would you ever mm. think like that? Mm. So... Most, I mean, the most successful surveillance systems are the ones that don't really need to come into function ever. Like, you, mm. don't, you don't need to do anything because people know what they're not supposed to be doing. Mm. But the ways in which the state keeps tabs on people is really through, through civilian surveillance. That's the most important function that people, you just never know who you're talking to. You never know who might be listening. So you better keep... You know, with, unless you're with a very, very close friend or family, but even then you never really truly know. So you can't really trust anyone not to report on you. And most of the cases that I've heard about people being reported on, they don't, they don't really know who reported them. Sometimes they have a sense, but they don't know. And throughout the bureaucracy, almost every institution that people comes into contact with on a daily basis is responsible for informing on people. Mm. So I've been trying to nail down like what institution is most important for maintaining people's personal records, like the, the files that the state mm. keeps on, on everyone. And it's kind of hard to pin down one specific one that is more important than the others because, you know, every, I mean, workplaces, you have the party secretary of the, the party cell. Mm. In schools, you have the teachers. Mm. And they submit basically like little yearly personal reports on people to be filed in, in a, a record uh, attached to every person. So what's interesting, though, is traditionally, at least, North Korea, unlike Stasi and, and other sort of equivalents in, in, in European countries, they haven't relied very much on, on technology for surveillance because mm. they just haven't had the resources. Mm. So that's why the humans really are, are the most important tools. They have started digitizing more and more mm. of these records and using more and more modern technology to strengthen the system, which I do think that they're pretty successful in doing. Mm. But that sounds scary. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is just my last question for you. Yeah, yeah. Just for someone who wants to know more about North Korea, what books would you recommend or reading? So I'm sure or something. Oh, there's... So many. Actually, there's one that I would recommend over all others. Mm. It's called The Accusation. Mm. It's uh, by a pseudonym author named Bandi. Mm. It's a collection of novels that uh, the publishers claim that they were smuggled out of North Korea, written by a North Korean author. It's not possible to verify 100% mm. that that's true, but it doesn't really matter, I think, because I've, I've asked quite a few people about this, like people from North Korea, and, and, and all of the, like, I haven't heard anyone say that they've found anything in it to, to suggest that it's not written by a North Korean. Like there are little details about it where people mm. will say, only if you have lived in Pyongyang can you know that this is how it works. Mm. Um, it, it just describes, it conveys this feeling of imprisonment within a system that no matter how hard you work, how smart you are, like none of these things matter at the end of the day because you're always going to be held back by any problematic family ties that you might have and by your place in the hierarchy of, of loyalty based on your family background. So not really based on what you've done, mm. but if you have in your personal records called Songbun, 
mm-hmm. by the way. Like there's this Songun is this system of this hierarchy based on on family background mm-hmm. that sort of divides people into various classes of political loyalty. And for a lot of people, that is probably the hard about the system when they face this wall that you you might work really hard on memorizing the leader's speeches or like another talent, mm-hmm. but we are always going to be checking who, you know, if, 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 if your uncle or your parents or anyone in your family has done something problematic, we know, and you're not going to pass. No, you're going to be held back and you will have to work in that factory or coal mine that you're assigned to. Mm-hmm. It's a great book. It's a really good <laughs> book. I, it's not light reading, but I, it's really good. Yeah, no, I yeah. agree with you. I've read Pandi. Oh, oh, you are great. Thanks so yeah. much, Ben. Thank, Thank you, you for speaking with me. Thank you. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. Bandi is a great book to read. I highly recommend it. I've attached links to it, photos of people dancing at election booths, and other cool stuff in the episode description. If you have any comments or questions, then do reach out to me at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram or at the rate Hamsini H on Twitter. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IVM podcast app, but also on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts from. So go subscribe and we'll be back next week. Do you wish you were smarter? Well, so do we. But the next best thing, we could make you sound smarter. And to help you with this endeavor, we are Simplified, Ooh. a podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a uh, little knowledge, a lot of poor jokes and a ton of random trivia. Episodes out every Monday on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. See ya. Advertising is dead. Yep, you heard me right. Advertising is dead. We're all in the content business now. Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc., etc. It's all content and we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet. We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now, but rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content and the whole goddamn circus surrounding it. Tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch, and this is my new podcast, Advertising is Dead. Advertising is Dead.